You'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. As we look back just a little bit into chapter 15, we see that the reign of Saul, King Saul, had begun with such hope for Israel. Even thinking back into the book of Judges and we see those spiritual problems, having a king was supposed to fix those spiritual problems. Saul was supposed to turn the heart of the people away from wickedness and back to the Lord. However, King Saul is refusing to do the will of the Lord, but yet in some delusional way, he's acting as though he is being obedient to the Lord. First instance we see is that he did not wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifices as the Lord had commanded. And even when Samuel approaches and questions him on the matter, he's in that delusion as though he has been obedient despite not following the instructions. Saul just does not get that 1% of disobedience is 100% disobedience. We have to follow all the instructions of the Lord. But God is a, a God of forgiveness. He's a God of second chances. Now, of course, from that he was told that his descendancy would not carry on the throne. So there were consequences for his disobedience in the offering of the sacrifices. But in getting a second chance, he was told that when he was to destroy the Amalekites, he was to destroy them completely, totally. But in chapter 15, we see that rather than destroying them in this manner, that he captures the king, he keeps the best of the flocks and the animals of the Amalekites. And in his mind, he thinks that this is, this is good and well, that this is a good idea, although the Lord has told him to the contrary. And he's still in that delusion. And so it's at that time, verse 35, we see that Samuel communicates to him, or verse 28, I'm sorry, that Samuel communicates to him that the kingdom has been taken away from him, that he has been rejected as king. And then the scene ends in verse 35. We see Samuel grieving over King Saul. And at this point, it just looks like a catastrophic failure. If you look through and think about a big picture through the book of Judges and the fact that everybody's doing what's you know, right in their, their own sight and that there's no king in Israel, and finally we have a king, and this is what's going to turn the people from wickedness back to following the Lord. But yet here is the king, and he has failed. And then rejected. And so Samuel's grieving. And we think about, well, why would Samuel grieve in such a way? Well, as we get into chapter 16, it would make perfect sense. Number one, Samuel has invested a lot into Saul and trying to help God through Saul solve this problem where the people are doing what's right in their own eyes. The chapter begins with God telling Saul or Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? But beyond just the investment of Samuel into Saul, you think about it, the solving of these spiritual problems. If you look at it from Samuel's perspective and God allowing them to have a king and supposing that God would fix these problems through that king, and then the king becoming catastrophic failure, if we step into the shoes of Samuel, we could understand why he would be greatly grieved. But God is going to provide a king. There's hope for Israel yet. And so therefore, we actually see the first messianic picture within 1 Samuel 16 is that God is going to provide for himself a king whom he desires to lead his people. The people chose King Saul. He looked the part. But now God is going to choose a king that he will choose, that he desires, that will lead his people. 
And so we see him telling him going to go to Jesse and to the sons of Jesse. Now, Samuel understanding the character of Saul, even though we have not seen this behavior yet uh, at this point in the story, but he's fearful that Saul will kill the new king. And so then, of course, the Lord gives Samuel some instructions as far as taking the heifer and saying that you're going to go make sacrifice. And so he goes and he takes the heifer and he goes to the house of Jesse and he invites him to sacrifice to the Lord. And then, of course, God will show Samuel whom it is that he shall anoint to be the Lord's king. So we come into verse 4 and following. God's choice for king. Now the second messianic picture that we see here is that Samuel goes to Bethlehem. So God, of course, is going to choose a king that he desires, and that king will come from Bethlehem. So Samuel goes, of course, to Bethlehem, and we notice in verse 6 that Samuel looked at Eliab, one of Jesse's son, and thinks, this one, he must be the Lord's anointed. Check marks, you know, he checks all the boxes as far as what we would think a king of the Lord would look like. But then, of course, verse 7 is critical. Quote, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord does not look at things as we would. We have that tendency to look upon the external, the appearance. We look upon the outward things. But God looks upon the heart. And this would be, of course, that third messianic point. God's anointed is not going to look the part. He's not going to look like King Saul. Look in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. We see Isaiah prophesying and mindful of this very point when Isaiah said, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. And in Psalm 118, verse 22, and then later quoted numerous times in the New Testament, quote, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief or choice cornerstone. In the 1990s, you had that popular tennis player, Andre Agassi, that had that successful commercial campaign that said, image is everything. And of course, among human beings, we do have that tendency to allow image to be everything. But it's not that way with God. And we must be mindful that God looks upon the heart. As we're drawn to the external and the image and the outward appearances, God is not. He looks upon the heart. And so I think when we look even at the qualifications of elders and deacons, we see that in the way that God has put these before us. It's not about whether the man is successful in business or the way that he looks or if he's a wealthy man or a popular man. I think the qualifications help us see the fruit of a man's heart, a man that would be qualified in regard to someone that looks upon the heart like God. And if we think about the church, us, this collection of people that belong to Jesus Christ, if we get caught up in looking upon the external things and even lifting up leaders that do the same, then we can suffer much. We can put ourselves into quite some difficult circumstances 
and even create some situations to where a lot of people can become very spiritually weak rather than spiritually strong like Jesus and carry on his characteristics and seeing things as God the Father sees things. And that's why I see this as such a critical thing. And as we'll talk about a little bit later after we come through the message of chapter 16 in its entirety, we have to be very careful as disciples of Jesus Christ that we don't make the same mistakes as King Saul. It's in our nature. It's man's tendency to make these mistakes. But coming back to the story, the Lord tells Samuel to ignore the appearance because that's not the way that God is going to make his choice. And so, of course, Eliab, even though he looks the part, not selected. Abinadab, not selected. Shammah, not selected. Seven sons of Jesse, all before Samuel, and none of them are chosen as the Lord's anointed. So, of course, Samuel asks, and it would bear the question, do you have any other sons? And of course, Jesse says, well, there's the youngest out tending the sheep. Oh, bring him here. So we need to think about that for a moment. Jesse didn't even suppose, even though Samuel's here, right, the Lord's judge, the Lord's prophet, this prominent figure, he's come to choose the Lord's anointed, and Jesse didn't even suppose that his son, his youngest son, David, would be an anointed. His own father didn't even think there was any much of a chance at all. So he wouldn't even call him. Even though they were going to make sacrifice, didn't even call David. But of course, as we read, we see that when David does come, Samuel immediately knows. And David was chosen. And he was anointed. God chose David when even his own family, his father, wouldn't even suppose enough to bring him to make sacrifice and certainly not before Samuel to make his choice. But that's the one that God wanted. So we have the fourth messianic picture. Even his own family would not suppose or would even reject him. So when we see that the spirit rushes upon David. And that's another interesting point that brings us to the fifth messianic picture. If we're given a task by God, he's going to equip us. And so, of course, we see that David is given the spirit. But if you look just ahead in the accounts, 17, 18 and following, look at what's just ahead. Goliath. And then all the problems that Saul brings upon David as far as his envy and his anger and his plots to take David's life. But of course, he has the spirit. But if you go into Mark chapter 1, think about when God gave the spirit unto Jesus. What came? The spirit took him out into the wilderness. And he was tempted. And the enemy was there. And wild beasts. So if God gives us a task, he certainly equips us. Think about Matthew 28. We give him the task as far as making disciples but then what does Jesus tell us? That he will be with us until the end of the age. We're equipped. But of course, we should suspect that there will be trouble. There will be problems. But we are equipped. All right, so then we carry on. We see that the spirit of the Lord, of course, has departed from Saul and is now upon David. 
And it would seem that there is now a spirit that torments Saul. Uh, his servants even saying such that was from God. That this spirit that torments Saul now is from God. And when I think about that, I, I think that that very well could be the case. I think about Saul's rebellion. He's been lifted up, given such privilege uh, to serve God in this manner, to have such a tremendous impact upon the people, and yet he has rebelled against God and tried to do things his way. And I think when we even look upon smaller situations, looking upon ourselves, even looking in the scriptures like Hebrews 12, we see that God will discipline us and that he desires that all would repent and that none would perish. And perhaps this is God's disciplining of King Saul to try to provoke repentance. But nonetheless, this tormenting of Saul, it leads us to yet another messianic picture. The servants suggest that Saul would command them to go and find one that could play music that could comfort him. And they say that there's this young man, a son of Jesse, who's skillful in playing, and that he's a man of valor, that he's a warrior, he's prudent in speech, a man with good presence, and that the Lord is with him. And so that sounds good to Saul. And so Saul does command them. And so they send for David, which I think is very interesting. He's still with the sheep. He's the Lord's anointed, but he has not received any promotion in life. He's still tending the sheep, which if we take a few moments to think about that life, that's a hard life out there in the elements. No protection in the winds, the rains, the coolness, the warmth, the threat of the wild animals, all those things David lives in and amongst and protects his sheep. But he's called and he comes to, to King Saul and then think about this. He has the spirit of the Lord and Saul does not, but David brings relief to even Saul because he has the spirit of the Lord and he's able to make the harmful spirits or spirit go away. And he's able to give relief. We look into our Lord Jesus and we see just that in our Lord. So when we think about these six pictures of the one that God would choose, we see first, as we mentioned, God will provide himself a king that he desires who will lead his people. Secondly, God will provide his own king and his king will come from Bethlehem. Thirdly, God is not going to select someone that looks the part as man would suppose they were supposed to look. Number four, God is going to choose a quote, nobody, end quote, to be the next king. God's going to choose a king that even their own family would, would reject, or at least initially. And number five, after God sends the Spirit, as we see upon Jesus or upon the king, trouble begins and it persists. And of course, as we look upon Jesus, the Messiah, we see that it persists all the way through his masterful obedience and ultimately victory as he's raised from the dead. And then finally, six, as we said, we see this king, God's chosen king, pictured as one that has the spirit and can provide relief. So let us bring this to just three simple points, a message that we carry from chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. So of course, the first message, powerful message, is that God looks upon the heart. The Lord does not look at outward appearances as we have the tendency to do so. He's not concerned about appearances as we often are so concerned. If we let that point rest upon us for a second, 
we're probably all guilty to some degree of being too concerned with our daily appearances before other people and trying to please other people with the way that we look or the way that we speak or the way that we behave. If we would just give a, a percentage of that attention, that effort, to the way that we would try to look before the Lord, we would, of course, be better served. We would bear more fruit, obviously. Yet when we consider Saul, this was, of course, his downfall. He desired to be honored by the people rather than to be obedient to God and to please God. At every turn, all of his disobedience, all of his mistakes, he had the people in mind or himself rather than serving God faithfully and trusting in the instructions that were given through Samuel from God. And so the Lord, though, this is the very interesting point. The Lord was not fooled by Saul's externals, these things that he put on for the people when he acted in his delusions as though he was being obedient. It didn't even fool Samuel, of course, maybe the people, but not God. And that's, of course, because God looks upon the heart. And so God is not fooled when we do the same things that we see upon King Saul. But we look upon God, though, in this scenario. Think about God not being fooled. This is a characteristic of God that is praiseworthy. We see it in Jesus Christ, and it's obviously something that we need to bring about for ourselves, that we are not fooled by the external, that we do not rest heavily upon the external. But it's easy for us to forget that God is not also fooled by spiritual appearances either. If you come with me and think about the first century and Jesus walking amongst the people, he had a hard time with the Pharisees. And that's exactly one of the major problems of the Pharisees. They had that external spiritual appearance as though that they were clean, as though that they were holy. But yet they were not. The inside was full of corruption and deceit and greed. If you look at Luke chapter 11, Jesus addressed it directly, beginning at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, do not he who made the outside make the inside also. But we need to see that we have a tendency and that I or we can do the same exact thing. We can make the same mistakes as King Saul and as the Pharisees if we're not careful. So what would that look like? Well, it could look like wonderful church and Bible class attendance. It could look like someone like myself that teaches Bible classes or that leads worship in various ways. It could be someone that sounds pretty pious and righteous, that says all the right things, that appears to be a spiritual person appears to be holy, and this would be called having a clean outside of the cup. But in that same manner, that outside could be clean and yet could allow 
the inside of the cup to continue to be unclean. Could allow hidden sins to just permeate in my life and allow to just stay inside me and manifest themselves. Could allow myself in places where maybe uh, spirituality will not be uh, examined as closely or where people may not know to act in a way that is not like our Lord Jesus Christ or maybe one that doesn't act like Jesus at home among their family but is very selfish or maybe in the workplace where they're not around other Christians dive off into the behavior of the world and to promote uncleanness in that fashion to act not like Jesus any and everywhere where no one's going to have an opinion of their spirituality. And this is where we can make the same mistakes as the Pharisees and as King Saul. And this, of course, is where people have the charge that there's hypocrites in the church. Right? But when we look back at what Jesus or what God has shown us through this story, we see that God is not fooled. And that is our hope. We can't get distracted with these things or disheartened by these things. We see that Saul did not fool God. The Pharisees did not fool Jesus. And so it's important that we instead do not allow ourselves to fall into the same mistakes, but rather that we learn to look upon our own hearts and look upon the hearts of others as God did. God knows the truth. So even if one like myself that could say all the right things but allow this uncleanness to go about, I'm not fooling anyone uh, that matters as far as my brothers and sisters or my family and certainly not God. And so that person will be reckoned. And God will, of course, try to make a way that they can be provoked to repentance. And hopefully that way could come through one of us in doing our duties as brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, since God looks upon the heart, we must realize that the cleaning of our lives or the cleaning of lives of other people must work from the inside out. So number one, we can't focus on what people see, but rather on what God sees. We must focus on the sins that are in the heart. God seeing what those things are and understanding what manifests them. So instead of getting caught up in the symptoms, we must go to the source and allow the Word of God to pierce us and pierce others like the sharp sword that it is. But as you see, if we don't respect the Word of God or we don't imprint it upon ourselves daily and weekly, then it's hard for us to yield the sword to help others. And of course, if we don't respect it ourselves, then it won't be able to work its, do its work upon our heart either. I just recently was talking to a co-worker and they're telling me that their son who's been removed from Coleman for some eight to ten years now. Uh, has been worshiping at you know, a different uh, type of church since that time. I think it was called the Church of the Highlands. And one of their friends had recently come out as homosexual. And her son was thinking about going to the wedding. And she was trying to explain to her son, her, his own wife, and saying the same things that you can't do that. That's wrong. God has told us that that is wrong. And if you go to the wedding, that's supporting something that God has clearly shown is wrong. You cannot support the things that are of the devil. But yet he's confused. But when we spend eight to ten years in a place that loves to make people feel good, 
love to create a, an experience, loves to entertain people, rather than to put the, the sharp, piercing Word of God before people consistently, then you can be confused. But if we will just hold true and stay grounded to that which God has given us and allow us to use it with others and use it upon ourselves, then we will see clearly and we will not be confused when we come into these matters of the world. We must realize God sees upon the heart and he has given us the word so that we can see as he sees. So we pull back the external. Number two, we cannot worry about other people being false. We must first worry about ourselves being false. It ties me back to one of Jesus' teachings as far as trying to remove that log from the eye of someone else when there's a speck in our own eye. We have to be very careful that we stay aware upon our own hearts first and making sure that we have a clean heart, that the inside of our cup is clean. And only then can we help clean the inside of the hearts of others through the word of God that he has given us to yield and to use. We must make sure that we understand transformation is from the inside out and that we remain clean and pure in this sense. And then we go and help others transform from the inside out. Because we have that tendency to look upon the external, we also have that tendency to try to help people on the external instead of going inside first and looking upon the heart and helping people be transformed from the inside out with the Word of God. So that's where we have to be very careful. I come to our third and final point. We have a, a message of hope. Yes, we can clean the inside of the cup, but God, when He sees that we are trying to clean the inside of the cup, He sees that. If we recognize that God is not fooled by those that would try to be external and try to appear spiritual, although that they're not, or they would allow these things to manifest inside themselves that are unclean, if he can see those things, then he also sees the faithful servant who is trying to cleanse their heart. And that is one of the most comforting things that I bring from 1 Samuel chapter 16. When we are fighting to save our own souls, when we're fighting those battles against Satan, and we're leaning upon God and we're trying to give him everything. When we're trying to love God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, God sees that. It's not like one of those situations growing up where you may be working really hard, trying to do well, and your parents or your coach or your teacher doesn't see it. They don't recognize. They don't appreciate the effort. God does. He knows when we are trying to give everything. And the thing that comes from 1 Samuel chapter, or, or the uh, first book and the second book, is we see a clear difference between Saul and David. And this is what gives me so much hope and so much comfort. Because both of them sin. Both of them sin in a very deep way that we all can relate to. But you must ask the question, what's the difference? And the difference is that Saul cares about honoring the people. He cares about pleasing the people. He's worried about the external. Whereas David, who sins deeply as well, he cares about pleasing God. He has a heart 
that desires God. And that's what makes all the difference. And so I bring that comforting message to us. We have the Word of God. We know what God desires of us, but yet we are going to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. We are going to sin. And so the most important thing is that we walk like our King David, who, of course, in this messianic picture, of course, manifests itself through King Jesus. We walk like our Lord Jesus, and we keep our heart pure before the Lord. We continue to strive so that God owns our heart. And we never give up. We live a life of repentance. We do not allow ourselves to become discouraged or disheartened to the point that we quit. Even in David's great failures, he never allowed his heart to turn as Saul's heart turned. He continued to go to the Lord and to repent. And he continued to desire God. And that's exactly what we must do. Jesus made this point. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we remember that the promise of the new covenant, that was the Lord that he would put his laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Therefore, we must come to the Lord with a sincere heart, and we must look upon the heart just like the Lord does. Let us go to the Lord in prayer.